If you have your Bibles, would you please open to John chapter 21? And we'll be, as you know, in chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have here, you'll find that on page 590. On page 590, the larger numbers you'll see will be the chapter. The smaller numbers will be the verses. And we'll be in chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Hopefully, I'll see some of you tonight at 6 o'clock at our baptism class. If you are on the fence or thinking about it, let me just say a couple things to try to uh, push you off the fence. The first thing that a new Christian does is they go public with their faith. And that's exactly what baptism is. It's going public with your faith. So if you have not been baptized and you have recently committed yourself to Christ, or you are thinking about committing yourself to Christ, then you should come tonight. Six o'clock, we'll talk about what baptism is and what it symbolizes. Maybe you have been baptized, but you just would like to understand again, or maybe you feel like understand for the first time what baptism actually is. And I'm confident that in a couple hours we can get you there. Or, and I've mentioned this before, maybe you have kids who at some point are going to be baptized and you're not sure how to handle that and how to teach them and when to do that. There's lots of questions there. And we devote some of our time and attention to that very question. So maybe it'll be applicable to some of you parents. So anyway, tonight... Our baptism class at 6 p.m. You can sign up over here after service. If you forget to sign up and 5.30 rolls around and you still would like to come to the class, uh, it's too late. You can't. (laughs) So you you can still come. You can still come. 6 o'clock, I'll be here. Before I preach this sermon, let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to have your word before us, and what an honor it is to think about who you are and what you have done for us. And we know this is a very serious time, God, when your word goes out and it does a work in our hearts. So we ask that you would do a work in our minds and in our hearts, that you would change us, help us to understand ourselves, help us to understand this world we live in, but most importantly, help us to understand who your son Jesus Christ is and what he has done to reconcile us with you, God. So if there are people here today who do not know the trouble they're in with a holy God, I pray they would know today. And I pray that the good news of your mercy would be sweet to their ears and hearts. And that you would turn all of us for the first time or again back to the love of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So as you might know, here we are at the very end of this Gospel of John. So the writer... The Apostle John is wrapping up his account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is really done telling his story. So imagine you're watching a film and at the end of that film it fades into black. And that is what has happened at the end of John chapter 20. But then imagine you've seen this before. That film then fades back in. And there's a bit more to the film. It's tying up some loose ends, maybe some things that that you were hoping it would address, it then addresses. Well, that's what John is doing in chapter 21. 
He is done telling his story of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, but the readers then, the readers now are left after reading his gospel with a few loose ends. And chapter 21 is a sort of epilogue where he ties those up for us. So loose end number one tied up in this chapter in verses 1 through 14, which we looked at last week, was how were these disciples going to carry on without Jesus? They had been dependent on Him for the last three years, physically, spiritually. So how were these disciples going to carry on without Jesus? That'd be a question they would have had. And it might be a question that you would have after reading through John's gospel. So Jesus taught them something in those first 14 verses. Jesus taught them that though it was true, he would no longer be physically with them. He would still be watching them and caring for them forever. In fact, and we know this from other words of Jesus that are recorded in this Gospel of John, though they and we would no longer see Jesus, he would no longer be in the boat with the struggling disciples, though they and we would no longer see Jesus, that does not mean that he is not there They were, we are, he taught them, still under his watchful eye. He's watching us, he's caring for us, and he's helping us. And the picture is this, that Jesus still is on the shore. As we struggle in the boat at times, he is on the shore at the right hand of God the Father. He's watching us. He's caring for us, and He's waiting for us to come to Him. And in the meantime, He comes to us in an even more intimate way than He came to the disciples. So it is not better, don't think that it would have been better to live in the days of the disciples and to see Jesus. It was not better, what they had is not better than what a Christian has today. What is better is to know Jesus in a more personal and intimate way through the abiding presence of His Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. That means that you are always in the presence of God. And His comfort, His help, His power is always available. So it's better. It's much better. So that was one loose end that Jesus tied up, but we do have another, and it is a big one. And the loose end is this. What about Peter? I mean, if you have been reading the Gospel of John... I mean, Peter's done some great things, but he's done some terrible things. And we're really not sure where Peter stands. So what about Peter? What about Peter and his relationship with Jesus? Or what about Peter and his role among the disciples? To this point, it's fairly clear that Peter was a first among equals among the disciples. So he was the leader of the disciples. He was the spokesman of the disciples. So in light of what has happened recently in the gospel with Peter, what about Peter? What is about his relationship with Jesus? What about his role among the disciples? So here's where we are. Jesus has just made and served breakfast to his disciples. And we are told in verse 9, at first what might seem to be an insignificant detail, but it's a very significant detail. Look with me. We're told in verse 9 that at the center of this breakfast was a charcoal 
fire. Now, there's only one other time in the entire Bible that a charcoal fire is mentioned. And so the last time that Peter and Jesus, here they are around a charcoal fire, the last time Peter and Jesus were around a charcoal fire was in John 18. And it was a charcoal fire that Peter was warming himself by as he denied Jesus three times. He failed Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 42, when Jesus meets Simon, he changes his name to Peter. And his name Peter, think about this, means rock. And in chapter 18, around that charcoal fire, that rock totally crumbled. He was a coward in John chapter 18. It, is, it was shocking to see Peter fall like that. Not once, not twice, but three times. He did not look like much of a disciple, and he did not look like he loved Jesus. He certainly did not look like he loved Jesus as much as he said that he loved Jesus. So that was the last time we had the charcoal fire. And now here's the charcoal fire again, and the subject of our text today is the restoration of Peter. That loose end gets tied up. What about Peter? So let's look and let's see how Jesus handles Peter here. They're all around this charcoal fire. Breakfast is over. The other disciples are most likely listening in because, remember, they need this loose end tied up too. And here's what Jesus is going to do. Let me summarize it first. He is going to ask Peter three questions. In fact, he is going to ask Peter one question three times. After Peter had denied Jesus three times, Jesus is now going to ask Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It does not take a rocket scientist to see what Jesus is up to here. Three denials, and now he gives opportunity for three confessions. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Did you notice Jesus doesn't call Peter, Peter? In fact, he hasn't called Peter by his original name since chapter 1, verse 42, when he renamed him. And some sources say that his original name, Simon, means wishy-washy. Now, first of all, I don't know why you name your kid that, but that's besides the point. So he comes back here and he calls Peter by his original name, Simon. He does not call him Rock, and I'm sure Peter did not feel like much of a Peter. He didn't feel like much of a Rock anymore. So Jesus asks him the question, do you love me more than these? Now, the first time Jesus asks the question, it's a little different than the other times in that it includes this phrase, more than these. He looks Peter in the eye and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? So the question you ask when you're reading that is, okay, Jesus, what did you mean by more than these. So I came up with three possibilities. And I'll tell you which one I think it is. Three possibilities of what Jesus means by more than these. Number one, maybe he means this. Peter, 
do you love me more than you love these disciples? Maybe that's what he means. Do you love me more than you love these disciples? Number two. Maybe he means, do you love me more than this fishing gear? For those of you who don't fish, that may be silly sounding to you. For those of you who do fish, that's a perfectly understandable question. Or maybe it would be something more like this. Do you love me more than you love your occupation? More than you love your livelihood? More than you love this thing that you do that makes you feel valuable and important and worthy? Do you love me more than these? Maybe Jesus, when he asks that motions, right, to the boat and to the nets and to the fish and everything that has just previously been pulled on the shore. Or, number three, And I think this is what Jesus means. I think he means, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? And I think that's what Jesus means because that was Peter's boast before. So he's coming back and asking him, How about now, Peter, after all that you've been through, now what do you say? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these disciples love me? Jesus had said in Mark chapter 14, he looked at his disciples and he said, you're all going to fall away. Do you remember that? In Mark 14, Jesus looks out at all his disciples and he says, listen, every single one of you is going to fall away. Away. It was a somber moment for the disciples. And you remember Peter? Peter spoke up in verse 29 and he said, Even though they all will fall away, I will not. So there it is. There's the boast. What does that mean? It means I love you more than these, or I'm devoted to you more than these, or I'm committed to you more than these. In other words, I can't speak for them. I mean, I hear what you're saying, Jesus. We're all going to fall away. And it wouldn't surprise me if they all did because I know them and their problems and their issues, and they're really not as committed to you as I am. But speaking for me, he's saying, I will not fall away. It's very similar. We don't even need to leave the Gospel of John to what Peter boasted in chapter 13 of this Gospel that John records. In chapter 13, verse 37, after hearing more troubling words from Jesus, Peter replied, Lord, Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You hear the boast again? Not we will lay down our lives for you. As he normally does, speaking for the disciples. But he personally boasts. Why can't I go? I, I am prepared to. I will Lay down my life for you. But a lot has happened with Peter since John chapter 13. And he's been changed. So how does Peter respond? Still in verse 15. He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And that is a very humble response. He answers the question. He's not insulted by the question. And most humbly, I think, he leaves off the more than these that he'd been happy to include before. So his response is not, Yes, I love you more than these disciples love you. His response is something more like, Lord, I cannot speak for these men and I should not compare myself to them, but I love you. Now, I should probably stop for a minute at this point because there is something here that 
and in the verses following that is not clear in our English translation, but some of you know about it. So I think if I don't address it, it may hold some of you up. So look with me. In this text, when we see the word for love, you you see that word all over the place, right? Verses 15 through 19, love, 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 love. When we see that English word love, there are actually two different Greek words that are being used. This is just the breakdown that happens sometimes. I mean, this was originally written in Greek, and sometimes you just don't have words in the English language that will translate and match the words in the Greek language. So we've got one word love, but they've got lots of different words for love, and so we just see love... But if you go back and look at the original language, there's two words that are being used. And the two Greek words are agapao and phileo. Agapao and phileo. And it goes like this. Look, I'll show you where they are in here. The first two times that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He uses the verb agapao. And the third time Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he uses the word phileo. And each time Peter answers, he uses the word phileo. So Jesus says, do you agapao me? Do you agapao me? Peter says, I phileo you, I phileo you. And then the third time Jesus sort of catches on, do you phileo me? And Peter again says, I phileo you. So what's going on there? Both of these words mean love. It's a good translation. They both mean love. They just have a slightly different stress. And you know that you use the word love in very different ways. I love beef jerky. I love my wife. I better mean something different But I'm using the same word, right? So, a different stress. So, here's what the difference is. Agapao means to love with intent or purpose. Phileo means to love with emotions. Agapao is the kind of love that takes action. It is intelligent love and it is willing to sacrifice itself for its object, agapao. Phileo is the kind of love that is felt deeply. It is the kind of love that raises the affections. It is the kind of love that produces loyalty. So all that said, the differences of these two words for love I don't think that we should make too big a deal of John using different words here. He'll do the same with sheep and lambs and feed and tend in these verses where he's basically saying the same thing, but he uses some other words. In fact, it is very common for the author John It is a common practice of his to use different words interchangeably. He does that all the time. In fact, he calls himself the beloved of Jesus. Remember, that's how he refers to himself throughout this book. And depending on where you go, he uses the word the agapao of Jesus and the phileo of Jesus. So John uses them interchangeably. So I don't think we should make too big a deal Jesus is not technically asking Peter two different questions or three different questions. That's not what Jesus is doing. The point is that Jesus is asking the same questions three times. That's the significance. So we shouldn't make too big a deal over the differences of those words. That said, if you are a young lady 
and sometime in your near future, a young man says to you that he loves you, it would be a good idea to ask him, do you agapao me or do you phileo me? And you can send him a link to this sermon. So you understand, there's, there's just a difference. So back to the text. Uh, Jesus has asked the question, and it's a question that he'll ask two more times, and Peter has given an answer, an answer that he will give two more times. And then how does Jesus respond? He said to him, still in verse 15, he said to him, feed my lambs. When Jesus says lambs, and he'll say sheep in the two following verses, he means his people. He means his people. And we learned that from John chapter 10. You could, you could look into that later. We learned that from John chapter 10. There, Jesus calls himself a shepherd. In fact, he calls himself the good shepherd. And he calls his people, those whom the Father has given him, his sheep. So the sheep, the lambs, they are the people of God. They are Christians. They are the church of God. And so what is Jesus doing here? Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. And then Jesus... It's very interesting to me. He gives Peter a job to do. That's an interesting response, isn't it? He gives him a command. He doesn't, when he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't, he doesn't pat him on the back and say, there, there, Peter. It's okay. He doesn't console him. He doesn't say, I, I know that you love me. He doesn't say, I forgive you. Peter doesn't ask for forgiveness here. Now, there's reason to believe that they had time together one-on-one -on -one before this, and maybe that happened in that context. We don't know. We don't have a record of it, but it, it doesn't happen here. In this case, Jesus responds to Peter by giving him work to do. Why does he do that? Why does he give him work to do? Well, I think one of the things certainly communicates to Peter, Peter, you are still useful. I still have work for you to do, Peter. You have not been disqualified from a relationship with me. You have not been disqualified from ministry. You're not tainted goods. You're not invaluable anymore. You're not, you're not useless. There's work for you to do. Back on the horse, Peter. And he calls him to feed my lambs. You know, Peter's been humbled now. And Peter will. We can track his life a bit and we can read two letters that he writes that we have later in our New Testament. And he definitely is a different man at this point. He's been humbled by God. Christian, I want you to think about this for just a second. Sometimes one of the most loving and gracious things that God can do for you is to let you fail miserably. Now listen, I get it, and I know from lots of personal experience that when you are in the middle of that, it does not feel like you're being loved. It does not feel like you're being cared for. And so it requires faith when you're in it. But many of you, including myself, who have come through things like that, 
come out on the other side, can in one sense say, oh God, thank you for teaching me that lesson. And thank you for reminding me how sinful I am. Thank you for reminding me that apart from you, I can do nothing. And thank you for keeping me from getting so much worse, and on and on. It is a grace of God that He often lets His people experience their weakness apart from God. So it humbles Peter. It can humble you. It draws Peter to Jesus. It does not push him away. So Jesus props him up. Feed my lambs. We know who the lambs and the sheep are. They are Christians. They are God's people. They are you and me. Two quick things to note here when Jesus says, feed my lambs. One, we belong to Jesus. This is great to think about. Jesus, when he looks at Peter, he did not say to Peter, feed the lambs or feed your lambs. But Jesus said, feed, I'm giving you a job to do, to help, to feed my lambs. So that's one thing to note, that if you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus. And a pastor of a church, for example, should at least never really mean that these are his people or his church. You are God's people. You are God's church. He says to Peter, feed my lambs. And the second thing, I know this is obvious, apparently we need to be fed. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have told Peter, feed them. Feed them. Sheep need to be fed. I've never had sheep. I've had goats. We had goats for a while. And I can say that this is true. Goats need to eat. They don't eat. They make terrible, horrible sounds. Give you nightmares. Believers also need to be fed. Christians need to be fed. The church needs to be fed. Out of all the things that Jesus could tell Peter to do, think about this. Feed my sheep. So what do Christians need to eat? I like hamburgers. I love hamburgers. I love steak. I like, in the summertime, I like barbecue. And in the wintertime, I like big pots of soup. That is obviously not what Jesus is talking about. When he says, my people need to be fed, feed them, he is obviously not commanding Peter to get cooking. He has some other food in mind. He has some other food in mind. And without it, they will die. If you don't eat, friends, you will die. If you decide that you're not going to eat anymore, the clock starts ticking. It's only a matter of time. And your body will die. Did you know this? That you are not just a body. You are a body and a soul. And did you know that your soul needs to eat? And did you know that if your soul does not eat what it needs to eat, your soul will forever die? And here's the truth. Saved souls feed on the Word of God. Saved souls feed on the Word of God. I think the best verse to illustrate that is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We go way back. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Talking to God's people. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, 
nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. What did he want to teach them, God's people? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what does that mean? It means you can't just eat bread. You can't just eat food. Your soul needs something else. Your soul needs truth. Your soul needs every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we must feed on the word of God. So as Jesus has made very clear to his disciples, he will soon be leaving. He's going to go to the Father And he is leaving behind sheep who will be followed by more sheep who will be followed by more sheep 2,000 years later, even more sheep. And the question is, who will care for them? Who will feed them? And the answer Jesus gives to Peter is, Peter, you must. They need to eat and you need to feed them. And the disciples must feed them. And then, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Holy Spirit Himself, until Jesus returns, will appoint other men to care for and feed for the sheep. And the Bible calls them elders, or pastors, or overseers, or shepherds. And there primary task is to feed the sheep. So friends, whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you're from, it would be appropriate for you to expect more than anything else from your pastors that they would feed you the word of of God over and over and over and over to feed you the word of God that is what I'm trying to do right now trying to feed the sheep Acts 20 28 pay careful attention to yourselves This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. This is Peter writing. After this commission from Jesus, years later Peter writes this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So there's the biblical basis. Peter gets it. Feed the sheep, feed the sheep. Well, as you know, Jesus is going to ask the same question two more times. Peter will answer two more times, and Jesus will respond two more times. So let's read it, verse 16 and 17. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, here's something new. This stands out. This is new. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, and this phrase is also new, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. John says, did you see that? John says that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked a third time. 
Uh, my best answer for what's going on there is that this third question, which is leading to Peter's third confession, takes him back to that terrible night. He was grieved because he hears the question for the third. This is sounding familiar now to Peter. When was the last time he said something three times, the same thing, over and over again? He's grieved. I think this takes him back to that terrible night. He's overwhelmed with grief. And it makes him answer a little bit different. There's a new phrase that's in there. He says, you know everything. So think about this. He hasn't said that before. You know everything, Jesus. Before this statement, when Peter has said, you know, it has referred to the good in Peter, the love in Peter, right? You know that I love you. You know that I love you. But now, before he says, you know that I love you, there's something else. You know everything that's different. I think Peter is saying, you know everything, Jesus, as Peter's reminded of the detail and depth of his denial. You know everything, Jesus. Not only the love in me, but the evil in me. The coward in me. The beast in me. You know everything. And yet, Peter knows that he knows that he loves Jesus. Just think about that. Peter knows how he sinned. He knows how he has failed Jesus. He knows that his actions do not look like love. He knows that. But he also knows that he loves Jesus. I know that what I've done does not look like love. I know that I've failed. I know that I've fallen. I know I had three opportunities. I blew it. I blew it. I blew it. I know that you know everything, Jesus. But I also, I can't deny, Peter, I know that I know that I love you. I know it doesn't match up, but I know that I love you. Have you ever felt like this, Christian? I don't know what to say to you, Jesus. I I feel like a hypocrite even saying this. I've done it again. I've failed again. Like a dog returning to its vomit, I go back and I go back. I don't know why I go back. I thought I was done with this. And here we are again. But i got to say it again, Jesus, I really do love you. I phileo you. I have deep abiding affection for you. I don't know what I would do without you. I know this isn't matching up right now. But I know that I know that I love you. It's like Peter is saying this, Lord, you know how awful I've been. And you also know how much I love you. Let's keep reading. Jesus has something else to say to Peter. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, you could read that and think Jesus is just talking about the common experience of growing old. You lose some of your abilities and you lose some of your responsibilities. And more than lead, you follow. More than people depending on you, you depend on others. It's sort of a common experience of Growing old, you could read that except that 
Jesus using, uses here a surprising term that referred to crucifixion. When Jesus said, you will stretch out your hands, that was a common phrase used to describe crucifixion. You will stretch out your hands, Peter. So Jesus is foretelling to Peter the reason and way he would die. And if you're not sure about that, he makes it very clear in verse 19, doesn't he? In verse 19, John gives this commentary. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Why does Jesus tell Peter this? What good comes from that? I met with some men in the church on Tuesday morning, and we talked about this passage as I was preparing, and I told them that that was my biggest question at that point. I needed to do a lot more praying and thinking, and I did not understand why Jesus said this to Peter. Why does Jesus tell Peter how he's going to die. Think about it. Peter will go on and live another 30 years after this. So that's 30 years of life and ministry with this prophecy looming over his head. So after a lot of thinking, here's my best guess. It's not a wild guess. It's a, a thoughtful guess. It's a prayerful guess. But here's my best shot at it. And you can think about this. Jesus tells Peter how he will one day die to strengthen and encourage him. Or to embolden and affirm him. I think that's what Jesus is tenderly doing with Peter. He is actually, by telling him how he's going to die, he is encouraging him and strengthening him. We might think that if Jesus handled us that way and if Jesus talked to us like that, and so Peter must have reacted the same way, that it would be crushing for him to hear that or to know that. And I don't think that's the effect that it had on Peter at all. I think Jesus' prediction goes like this. Peter, I know that you love me. In fact, I know you love me so much that you are going to die for me. You're going to die a martyr's death. Now, I suspect that that was maybe even surprising to him the best thing Peter could have heard. The man who felt so ashamed for denying Jesus was going to die for Jesus. You imagine what that would do for his shame, for his guilt, for his feeling of uselessness before God? I know you love me, Peter. You love me so much that you're going to be willing to pay the ultimate price. Don Carson said in his commentary, what is undisputed is that the indelible shame Peter bore for his public disowning of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was sentenced to death was forgiven by the Lord himself and subsequently overwhelmed by the apostles' fruitful ministry and martyrdom. 
Don't you love it when you have an opportunity, when you have failed someone that you love, to prove to them that you love them? I don't know about you, but some of the most difficult emotions that I have when I sin against someone that I love is that they'll think I don't love them. That they'll think my profession is a sham. That at the end of the day, I don't really care about them. Because if I did, how could I treat them that way? It's a great argument. How could I say those words? How How could I act that way? So I'm worried and fearful. Maybe they're not going to know or not believe that I really do love them. Aren't you thankful then when you have those opportunities to, to prove your love? I think that's a bit of what's happening here for Peter, and I know he was glad to do it. Tradition, pretty solid tradition, tells us that Peter was crucified under the persecution of the wicked Roman emperor Nero. And further Tradition tells us that he refused to be crucified in the same way Jesus did and requested to be crucified upside down and was. This boy was changed by Jesus dramatically. I don't think that this loose end could be tied up any more clearly for Peter, for the disciples, and for us, right? What's the loose end? What about Peter's relationship with Jesus? That's tied up nicely. What about his role among the disciples? That's also clarified. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And no one blew it among those living disciples the way Peter blew it. A quick side note before I move into wrapping this up. If you're wondering this morning, if you're wondering this morning as you hear this story of Peter and what Peter has done and then the forgiveness and the work that he's given to do, if you're wondering if it works the same way for you, I'm so happy to tell you the answer is yes. It works exactly the same way for you. And you might be thinking, Pastor, you don't know. (laughs) You don't know what you're saying when you say that. I think I make Peter look pretty good. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've said. You don't know how deep the ugliness is in me. But the answer is Jesus knows. What does he know? What did Peter say? You know everything, Lord. You know everything. The good news is that Scripture tells us in Psalm 103, 12 that Jesus removes your sin from you and it's like as far as the east is from the west. You can't even wrap your mind about around how far away that is. You got west going infinitely that way, I think. You got east going infinitely that way. How far apart are they? That's pretty far. I mean, they're going in opposite directions forever, I guess. And that's how far your sin is taken from you. What sin? Well, all your sin. The sins you've committed, the sins you're committing, the sins you will commit. Jesus is able to take all of that and remove it as far from you as the east is from the west. It's really amazing when you think about no one loves you more than Jesus and no one knows you more than Jesus. He knows you more than anyone could possibly know you. And the way that usually works is then I get loved less. I mean, I'm definitely thinking the more you know me, the less you're going to... If you have any love for me right now, I'm pretty sure the more you got to know me and see how bad I am or weird I am or annoying I am or irritating I am, I'm fairly confident you would love me and like me less. So Jesus knows you better than anyone could ever possibly know you. 
He knows you better than you know yourself, and He loves you and accepts you. That is good news. In conclusion, I want to take Jesus' question and ask it of myself and ask it of you. Do you love Jesus? This is the heart of the matter. Do you love Jesus? That's a better question than, are you a Christian? We get to the heart of the matter, right? Do you love Jesus? Here's what I'm not asking when I ask that. Here's what God is not asking. Do you go to church? Are you a good person? Are you religious? Those are the wrong questions. And those are unhelpful questions. Do you love Jesus? A Christian loves Jesus. This really gets to the heart of the matter. This really gets to the heart of what a Christian is. A Christian phileos Jesus. A Christian has deep affection for Jesus. And a Christian, therefore, strives to agapao Jesus. To obey him. J.C. Ryle said, do you love me? may seem at first sight a simple question. In one sense, it is so. Even a child can understand love and can say whether he loves another or not. Yet, do you love me is in reality a very searching question. We may know much and do much and profess much and talk much and work much and give much and go through much and make much show in our religion and yet be dead before God from lack of love. And then at last, to go down to the pit. Do we love Christ? That is the great question. Without this, there is no vitality about our Christianity. We are no better than painted wax figures, lifeless stuffed beasts in a museum, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. There is no life where there is no love. Do you love Jesus? That is the question for every one of us here. That's the question for you adults. And that's the question for you children. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Lastly, finally, where does this love come from? Where does this love come from? You ever try to make yourself love someone? You ever try to make yourself have feelings for someone? You ever try to make yourself have emotions for someone? You ever try to make yourself love someone like that? It's impossible, isn't it? So if I have this love for Jesus, where did it come from? If, if I don't have this love for Jesus, where is it going to come from? And here's the simple biblical answer. Love for Jesus comes from the love of Jesus. Love for Jesus comes from the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus. So love for Jesus going up comes from the love of Of Jesus coming down. He starts this thing, not you. The love of Jesus is, here's a big, great word. The love of Jesus is efficacious. 
And I want you to remember that word. The love of Jesus is efficacious. No one else's love is like this. The love of Jesus is efficacious. That means this. The special love of Jesus is successful 100% of the time in securing, in producing its intended result, reconciliation between you and God. When Jesus loves you, you love Jesus. And I mean when Jesus by His Spirit opens your eyes to what He has done for you, you don't go, well, that's a wonderful offer. And if you give me a week, I'm going to consider this. I'm going to weigh my options. You don't think about it. It's efficacious. It produces a result in you. You don't think about it. You love Jesus. Ask Christians that are here that have been Christian, that became Christians as adults, and they will tell you. I don't know what happened, they might say. But listen, I just know that all of a sudden, I love Jesus. And I wanted him, and I, I wanted to know him, and I wanted to obey him, and I wanted to sing songs to him. It's so weird. I made fun of those people, and now I was one of those people. So what happened? We love because he first loved us. He set his affection on you before he even created this world. But then he chose a moment in time in your life to take off the blinders. And to awaken you to his great love for you. And it changed you. And so Peter would write later in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable. Undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So though you have not seen Him, you love Him. So friends, do you love Jesus? Is your heart burning within you in this way? So I will be available to talk about this if you'd like. As soon as service is over, right up here. And I'll wait for you. If you have questions, you want to talk about Jesus or talk about committing your life to Jesus, I'd encourage you to come to the baptism class tonight. You could also just turn to someone sitting near you, maybe a member of this church, and tell them, I want or I'm interested in committing myself to Jesus. But don't let another day go by. Don't let another hour go by without turning to Jesus and loving Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. And well, some of us, God, can remember a day when we didn't know you'd been good to us or we didn't think you had been good to us. And God, we're so thankful that you've opened our eyes, minds, hearts, ears to see how great the love that you have lavished on us is. And God, we suspect that there are other people here today who you love so much that you've died for them and they don't realize it yet. And so we pray that you would do to them what you did to us.
that you would save them and that you would give them new life even now this morning and open their eyes to see you. For all of us, God, as we think about this good news of who we are and who we are before a righteous and holy God and then what you have done to save us and to make a way for us, pray, God, that it would result, as Peter said and prayed, in uh, our praising you, in our rejoicing you, in our honoring you, even in the rest of our time together this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.